Well, as we've highlighted several times, there's a turning point in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, as Peter confesses that Jesus Christ indeed is the Lord. And at that turning point, Jesus sets his face, as it were, towards Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross. The, the, the plan of the Trinity is to the cross. The mission of Jesus is to the cross. And with that, if you have noticed, I know I have in my study, there, be, there is added an extra sort of weightiness and heaviness to the text following that confession of Peter as we're called to lay down our lives to take up our cross as we see the transfiguration the weight of the glory of our God and indeed now as we look at the doctrine of hell and eternal judgment it's a doctrine often ignored by the church I understand it's not the most pleasant subject to sit and to dwell upon deeply for a long period of time. And so it's been reinterpreted or it's been shunned by many in the church for a long time. And yet we find ourselves in that text today. So we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking on hell and judgment. We have seen through Mark that the gospel is surely an offense. There is an attraction to it and the beauty of Jesus Christ, but there is an offense that comes along with it. And part of that offense certainly is judgment, certainly is hell. And I understand why people are uncomfortable with it, why even as Christians we may have in this room slightly different ways, interpretations of thinking of it. And we can become uncomfortable with it because we don't want to be offensive people. Well, most of us, maybe your random person out there who just loves doing that. But for the most part, we don't want to be offensive people. We're, we're not looking to sound archaic, to sound unreasonable. Maybe we're uncomfortable in a sense because we lack assurance in our own lives. Or perhaps we're uncomfortable in the sense that we don't want to come across as feeling very narrow-minded and judgmental to others. And and the gospel just has that sense of an offense about it that can make us uneasy. The doctrine of hell and God's wrath is a stumbling block to many. It is. We won't look at the objections, but there are emotional objections to it. There are certainly philosophical objections to it and and so as you see the treatment of it today often it will get cast in the light that that our understanding of the church real our understanding of hell maybe just comes from like the medieval Roman church and as the church was sort of losing its way that was a time I mean they believed in goblins and fairies and all kinds of crazy stuff and so we just you know hell got this weird picture about it and so we just you know we've moved on beyond that or perhaps we think no, it, the concept of hell we understand is more just from a Puritan perspective. Those earlier days in America, and you have your Puritan speakers. You remember Jonathan Edwards has to be the most famous sermon spoken. American soil, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Perhaps it is just that that we get this weird idea of hell about. Or maybe even more recent maybe it's it's the an anti-intellectual fundamentalism perhaps that would weaponize God's holiness and not trust trusting in in God's grace to do a work would would sense that let let's just scare the pants off of people we'll talk about hell in that way 
But really what you see is more of a swing the other way, and that is that we have an Old Testament God, and he was more into the wrath and that kind of stuff, but thankfully New Testament Jesus is much nicer. And so we just have a softer figure. He's a a Jesus of love. He is pure love. He's safe to be around. He's more modern in his thinking than than God is. And he's, you know, becomes uh, much more tame and easy for us to control. And yet, when we look at hell today, and we'll look at it in the New Testament, it's Jesus himself who teaches on hell much more than anybody else. We, don't, we believe in the answer of God, so we don't often make a hard distinction between what Jesus says, the words in red, compared to what Paul would say or Peter would say, as if one is more authoritative than the other. We believe in God's inspiration. All of its word is sufficient and inerrant. And yet here in one of the harder doctrines, it is Jesus who communicates to us most often about hell. So what I'm going to do is, is talk about this concept of hell for a little bit, look at three objections and then three applications we get from the text. And that sounds like a lot, but I think we'll, we'll move at a decent pace through it. So in the text you heard read for you, Jesus uses the word for hell, and the, the word he uses is Gehenna. Gehenna is that word. So to get a little bit of the background, what is is he saying there with Gehenna? Gehenna actually has a historical background to it. In the southwest corner of Jerusalem is the Valley of Hamon, or transliterated is Gehenna. And it's this area in the Southwest Valley, and it's a deep valley, a deep ravine, and it's surrounded by kind of rock wall, cliff rock walls, and so you have this deep ravine here. And in the darkest times of the people of Israel, when they were worshiping other gods and other pagan gods during the, the reign of Ahaz and, and Manasseh and others in the southern kingdom, in the darkest moments in that, they started practicing human sacrifice, primarily the sacrifice of children. And this took place in Gehenna, in the valley of Hinnom. That, that is where these offerings and these sacrifices took place. And you have the prophet Jeremiah. You can read in Jeremiah as he preaches and, and condemns this false uh, teaching, these false sacrifices to the, the god Maybach? What is the god that they were offering to? That doesn't matter. As they offered to that false Ammonite god. And so they're offering these sacrifices. Jeremiah comes and he declares, this has to stop. Judgment is going to come to you. And at that time you have Josiah, the young king who rises up, who, who hears the warning from Jeremiah, and he seeks to shut down this worship of these false gods, and especially this uh, false sacrifices, these human sacrifices, these children being sacrificed. And so in order to stop it, he actually turns the entire valley which is a smaller area, but this valley of Gehenna into a massive dump, into a massive garbage dump. And to kind of just desecrate what used to be a place of their worship, now it's just filled with trash 
and with filth. And over time, it started to include, they would bring the carcasses of dead animals and they would throw it into this uninhabited uh, ravine. And then even criminals and outcasts, their carcasses would get thrown into here. And it was just a place of filth and, and, and trash. Well, eventually, to keep it under control, they set it on fire. And so it would burn. And so you have this valley, and it was burning. And it is Gehenna, that's the valley, and it's burning. And, and the fire never went out because trash was always being thrown and added to it. And with all of the dead carcasses, the, the worms, the maggots, the parasites, never died out. They were always in there. And then you see in Isaiah that he takes this imagery of the valley of Gehenna and he uses it as a form of imagery or judgment that is to come upon the, the people of God if they reject God and turn from him and they do not worship him. And he speaks of it as the day of the Lord will come. And at the day of the Lord, there are eternal consequences from it. Redemption and relief for those who believe in eternal judgment for those who do not. And Isaiah, in his very last words, in Isaiah 66, says it will be like the, the valley of Hamon. It will be like Gehenna, where the fire never goes out, where the worm never dies. And so Jesus picks up on this imagery of hell, of Gehenna, as a place of judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ, for those who reject his message. And this is the imagery then that we have. Gehenna is used most often in the New Testament when speaking of hell. Jesus uses it himself 11 or 12 times. So a place of judgment, a place of filth where the fire never goes out, where the worm never dies. So three questions that you often get I often get approached with when it comes to hell. So is hell a literal lake of fire? Is it literally just flames and fire and maggots all the time? My answer is probably not. Maybe. <laughs> But, but probably not. The, the scripture is full of imagery and metaphors that speak to symbolize something greater that, than just that moment. And so I think most likely it's not literal in the sense of actual lake of fire, actual maggots. There's examples of that all through scripture as the, speaks in, in these metaphorical terms, especially when it comes to eschatology, and as we think about the new heavens and the new earth, or we think about hell and judgment. However, to dismiss what we do not like about what the scripture says, to dismiss what we feel uncomfortable about scripture by just saying it's a metaphor or a sign is to not really be honest or to be thinking in what we're reading. Jesus uses this illustration because it is a horrendous graphic illustration. And hell, whether it's actual fire or not fire, is not going to be less horrendous and tormentous than this picture of fire. So when I say it's probably not real fire, it's not to give you relief like, oh, it's no big deal then. Uh, I'll say it this way. Often when someone loses a loved one, they'll have many questions. What is heaven like? How do I picture my loved one in heaven right now? What are they doing? What are... 
And you can go to the Word and provide some uh, direction. But at the, in the end, it's hard to know exactly what that looks like. And one thing I've noticed is that people will have something in their mind specifically that's important to them about heaven, that they hope their loved one, their spouse, their child, whoever it is, is experiencing heaven in this way or something's happening to the point that if it weren't real, they would think they'd almost be disappointed. And so I would emphasize with heaven, I'll emphasize to them that I think it's safe within biblical reason as long as we're not going outside of scripture, to imagine what you want about heaven because it's going to be better than that. (laughs) You're not going to get there and be like, oh, I'm disappointed that this isn't part of the experience. I was really hoping for that. Whatever we have described to us, streets of gold and gates of pearl and all, it's going to be way better than any of the symbolism or imagery that you have. So when we come to hell, I wouldn't say now all of a sudden the rules switch. No, the, the thing symbol, the symbol is, is rarely ever greater than the thing it symbolizes. And so when it's hell is, is talked about as this fire that is not put out and the worm that does not die, that's a symbol. And what it is symbolizing is no less awful than that. So whether you think there is some fire there, you don't think there is fire there, I think the point is, it is giving us a ghastly picture of torment and judgment. Second question, is hell just the absence of God? Again, I I think if we're honest, when people ask that, they're, they're looking for comfort in this answer. That somehow it feels less offensive if it's just, well, hell is just the absence of God. That that's not quite as offensive to tell somebody than to speak about the imagery of of endless fire and worms and all that. And so Is it just the absence of God? First, we probably do disservice to just how terrifying it would be to be in the complete absence of God. I would say hell then, we could think of it this way, would be the the absence of his divine common grace, his restraining grace that all of us, everyone under the sun experiences and enjoys right now. And yet I would say that those who are unbelieving, those in hell, that they would long for God to be gone because they are experiencing his real divine wrath. That's what they are experiencing. The wrath poured out of Jesus on the cross, that is what is experienced in hell for those who are not covered by that atoning grace. And so I would say yes and no, no. God is there in his divine justice and wrath, and it is terrifying. And then the third sort of question or objection, is hell just annihilation? This by far is the more common treatment that we hear today, that hell is annihilation, that, you know, really the punishment is those who believe will will have eternal life and enjoy the presence of their savior and to not have that to just have life cease is the punishment one that seems to fly in the face of the eternal nature of hell that scripture speaks about all the time revelation 14 10 through 12 i won't read it right now but, but jot that down others that speak about the eternality of hell Even our example here of the fire 
never going out, of the, the worm never dying. The, the idea of the worm never dying, I think, is, you know, a parasite gets into a host and it feeds on that host. When the host is completely gone and dead, the parasite eventually dies as well. Well, here the host never dies. So the parasite never dies. That's the picture that you're getting. There is an eternality, yes, eternal justice. And I get how uncomfortable that is, especially if you have loved ones, know someone who has died and most likely was not a believer. It's not something we rejoice in of that anyone is, is going to hell. I mean, we can rejoice in the Lord's justice, but it is a terrible, terrifying thing. I get the difficulty of it. I've been involved in funerals where most likely there was no signs of faith in someone's life. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's the weight, it's the heaviness of that then that sits in the background that gives us sort of our three encouragements, how it should motivate us and move us then. So back into our text more specifically. If there is a real hell, and there is, and if judgment there is eternal and final, how then should we live now? How should that direct the way we live? Number one, we should take care that we do not cause others to stumble. Take care that we do not cause others to stumble. And you see that at the beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Little ones, I think we're tempted there to think it's children because we've seen children in the context already. But the word there for little ones is just for the immature, for that novice in the faith, the new believer, sort of a simple person with simple faith, someone who hasn't grown deep in their faith and is able to sort of defend it and understand it fully. It's that little one, that immature one, that novice. If someone comes along and causes that one to stumble, the imagery would be better there for the millstone to be around their neck. You can just picture one of those huge great stone wheels millstones that big enough that a beast of burden must turn it the image is pretty horrible to have that one thrown in to the sea and we're seeing just with hell in the backdrop the responsibility is for preachers someone who's accountable for the souls of those who hear him for teachers for any of you who in your faith would, would be able to disciple someone else, mentor someone else, would be grown in the faith, that you would not just be so flippant and careless with your faith and how you handle it, that you would cause others to stumble. That your embarrassment at the offense of the gospel would not cause you to, to shift it and make it so much more palatable that it causes somebody else to hear it and to stumble. That your life isn't lived in such a way that it's so different from the faith that you confess and the way you live is such a disconnect that a young, immature believer would see it and just think, this means nothing, this isn't worth it. I think for pastors, for teachers, that, that you wouldn't be invested in building your brand or, or, or your 
identity that somehow is unique. So you, you come up with some, some cool and unique way of, of teaching the gospel that, that forfeits its confessional truth and its, its anchor in the word. And to you, it might feel like not a big deal and just, you know, but it can affect others and it can affect that immature, that novice and shipwreck their faith. And we are warned. You think of the eternal judgment. You think what is coming. Be careful that you do not cause others, cause those new in the faith to stumble. Secondly, that we make war with sin in our own lives. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Before we breeze by it, this is speaking about spiritual mortification, not physical mutilation. The early church, there was some misunderstanding, and there's actually, you can read about episodes of people doing mutilation to their body in order to try to overcome sin. Enough so that the Nicene Creed, actually, the Nicene Council, actually, as they met, the 300s put in there that it is, it is heretical, unorthodox to, to teach physical mutilation and disobedient for someone to do that. And there are people who feel that impulse of injuring themselves and hurting themselves and punishing themselves. And those people need our compassion and our care and not led astray by this passage. And we know that's true because if you're struggling with sin and you actually cut off your hand, you'd still struggle with sin. So it's not saying that's actually an antidote. I think what we know what it's saying your fight against sin needs to be taken seriously. There is no halfway measures. There's no excuse making when it comes to the fight against sin. As John Owen would say, you be about killing sin or it will be about killing you. We are very quick to speak comfort to ourselves, excuse to ourselves in our struggle against sin. We need to be, as Romans 8 would tell us, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm not saying we'll arrive at perfection. That will never happen. The point is, you need to be always fighting sin because it's always going to be there in some form in your heart and your life. But if you find yourself making excuses for your sin, if you find yourself flirting with sin, I I mean, we go through a bunch of examples. You know in your own heart, your own life. If you're engaged in that relationship and it's the beginning of the, you know it's an inappropriate way. You're, you're talking with someone and interacting with someone in a specific relationship. Man, cut it off. Gouge it out. Take extreme measures to get rid of it. He uses the, the hands, the feet, the eyes. It's kind of your whole person, what you do, your hands, where you go, your feet, what you see, your eyes, your, your whole life. You need to be on guard. You need to not give room for sin. 
Don't make excuses in your fight against sin. He's saying, take it seriously. Because what sits in the background of all of this is hell and eternal judgment. Don't be lazy in that battle against sin. And then thirdly, our last point is keep your suffering salty. Now, some of you are naturally pretty salty, but uh, I don't think it's that kind of salty. And Verse 49, it's an odd verse, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Its background is in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices that they offer. If you look at Leviticus 2, a few other places in Leviticus, it talks about the offerings that they, that they bring to the Lord. They are salted. They, they are given, they are given these, the, the salt is poured on the sacrifice. And so the sacrifices themselves are salted. You get to Numbers and we actually have the covenant of salt. And it's that idea of adding the salt, this, this sort of aroma to our God, so that when you offer this sacrifice, it's wholly consumed, it's wholly burned up. And what's left on that altar is that salt, that saltiness. That, that God will be true to his people. God, God will remain. He accepts that covenant. He accepts that sacrifice. And that aroma, that saltiness it is left behind. It is still there. And so what is taking place here with Mark, I think, is he's now taking this illustration of fire and he's changing it from the fire of perdition and judgment to the fire of testing and suffering and sacrifice. And just as a note, another reason why I wouldn't necessarily think with hell it's literal fire. It's not like your testing is literal fire. It's a metaphor of of what you're going through. Again, just a comment on it. But so everyone will be salted with fire. So that stands as its background. And so I think what he's saying is we are the sacrifice. We are the offering. Our discipleship, as we saw in chapter 8, of taking up our cross and laying down our lives, as Romans 12 would tell us, 12 1, that we are a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, that we are that sacrifice. And in our fight against sin, part of that purification, part of of that walk is the testing, is the suffering, is the fire that comes with it. That is just the reality. That's the way of the disciple. Just as Jesus doesn't go to glory except through the cross, so part of our discipleship includes the cross. It includes the suffering. And that suffering should produce in us a saltiness. So as we walk through the suffering, as we walk through testing, we don't lose our faith. We don't lose our Christian joy. We don't lose what makes us distinct from the world around us in the midst of testing and fall away, but that we would stay salty so that our lives are a sacrifice to God. And in being that sacrifice, it's a testimony to those around us. And he says that in verse 50 then, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt is good. The the idea of it, it keeps things, it preserves things. Salt was incredibly important back then. But it's no good if it loses its saltiness. 
If you go through the testings, if you go through the, the, the suffering, the testings of discipleship, but you lose all of that saltiness, you lose all of that distinct Christian joy and hope and faith, then it's good for nothing. It's to be a preserving element to the world around us. Our saltiness is a testimony of Christ. And so he would tell us again with hell in the background, as you walk through suffering, as you walk through testing, don't forsake the faith, don't forsake the joy of the faith, both for yourself and for those watching around you, that you would remain salty because your greatest impact isn't just that you suffer, but that you suffer well as a Christian with joy and with hope. That's how you grieve. That's how you walk through testing. And then it ends with this little comment, so we will as well. It says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the end, that unity, the call to being at peace with one another, that we would be about fighting sin, not fighting one another. Looking back to the disciples and the rivalries that they were starting, who would be greater in the kingdom, me or you? And God said, Jesus says, you're missing it. To be great is to be a servant, to humble yourselves. The disciples, as they're getting riled up that someone else is casting demons out and they're not part of our group, should we stop them? And is it about building your own kingdom? And it be, can become this individual self-promotion, kingdom building. And he's telling you, in the walk of Christian faith, it's a difficult journey. The stakes are high. So watch yourself. Watch your life. Take care in your fight against sin. And then allow the testings, the sufferings of this life, the bearing your cross to do its work of preserving and nourishing your faith for your own sake and for the testimony of others. And at the heart of that is we need one another to do that. We need to walk in peace, not fighting one another, but fighting the sin without. So I'll close with those words again. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray.